Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to our last episode of If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 8th. On today's show, we'll talk to Daniel Lee, a prominent coach and commentator in the competitive Super Smash Brothers scene. We'll discuss how the community has grown and what it takes to be a professional Super Smash Bros. player. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus and our new host, Lizzie O'Leary, will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The video game news outlet Polygon recently published an expansive oral history following the community around the Nintendo game Super Smash Bros. It's a fighting game similar to Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter, featuring characters from the Nintendo universe, including Mario, Zelda, Pikachu, and Donkey Kong. The aim is to knock your competitors off the stage. Nintendo has come out with four versions of Super Smash Bros. over 20 years, and a worldwide community has formed around the franchise. The Polygon piece traces how small local tournaments began to spring up in basements and libraries in places like Southern California and Osaka. There are now professional Smash Bros. players who earn hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, playing in tournaments attended by thousands of people. Competitions have even been broadcast on ESPN. Today we're talking to Daniel Lee, who spoke for the Polygon piece. Daniel was a commentator and a coach for a player named Mango, who is regarded as one of the five best players in the history of Smash Bros. Daniel currently works in analytics at CounterLogic Gaming. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Awesome. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so how did you first get involved in the Super Smash Bros. scene? Uh, what attracted you to it? I used to play all the time with my friends, and then I wanted to get better, so I just tried to find whatever I could, and I discovered this online forum called Smashboards, and then I went to my first tournament. Uh, yeah, what did your first tournament look like, and how have you seen the tournament scene kind of grow over time? So my first real tournament was, it was in a college, and we just took over a random classroom. It was really raggedy. We used random chairs as um, tables for the TVs. I didn't do very well. I got destroyed. I thought I was the best in the block, and unfortunately, (laughs) I got whooped. Yeah, it seems like the tournament scene is now huge. They have stadiums and everything. How did that happen? How did it grow over time? You know, 2013 especially had a really large growth because it got into Evo, and that's one of the biggest fighting game tournaments in the year. And also the Smash documentary came out. So I think what that really did was it exposed a lot of people to competitive Smash, especially for players who play with their friends all the time that never knew that there was a competitive scene that even existed. So what makes the Smash scene distinctive from other large esports communities like Fortnite or StarCraft or other fighting games? I would say there's a lot of developer support for the other big games like League or Fortnite, and so it's driven by the developers for the competitive scene. I would say in terms of what our scene does, it's a lot of grassroots efforts. So um, I think we in the FGC are very similar in that we have to run our own events, and any initiative that uh, we do has to be community-driven. 
Yeah, it seems like Nintendo has been indifferent or even a little hostile to the competitive Super Smash Brothers community. Uh, why do you think that is? I mean, it's a lot with the Japanese market. You see uh, Blizzard and Riot and Epic Games are American and Western companies, so they're more progressive, whereas um, Nintendo of Japan is a lot more traditional. And so there's a lot more education that needs to be done for them to take a risk into esports. So how many professional Smash players would you estimate there are now, and how hard is it to make a living at this? I think in terms of pro, I'd probably say there's probably 30 or so players that are trying to make it full-time or um, Smash is their primary income. The big issue is just that the prize money just isn't there, and a lot of players aren't sponsored, so you just add up all the costs, like let's say airfare is 300, hotels about four to 500 a weekend if you share a room. Food and Ubers, that's about $1,000. And if you get third place, you get $1,000 for a 1,000-man tournament. So essentially, everybody's losing money just even going to the event unless you win the tournament. So this is a side hustle for a lot of people, it seems like. Yeah, it's a side hustle and it's a hobby. And for a lot of people, what they end up doing is they use the clout they get from winning events or becoming popular through Smash and use it to start their own Twitch streams or content. So what does training look like for a professional? How many hours a day are they practicing and what are they working on? I would say it's a lot less regimented than um, traditional esports um, where you see league and Fortnite players are grinding very specific things for 12 hours a day. I'd say most players, yeah, they kind of practice like probably like anywhere from like two to six hours a day. But sometimes it's not, it's not really well structured. So sometimes you just have people playing the game. There are players like Leffen and other people that practice very specific things, and those are the players that are improving really well. But overall, like, there's no like really, it's all over the place for each player. So it seems like some people are just kind of playing the game as they would normally, and it seems like other people are doing drills or mapping out strategies. Everyone has their own ideas on what's best for them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> you were a coach for a professional player named Mango, who is regarded as one of the best in uh, Smash Brothers history. Could you talk a little about who he is and what his reputation is in the community? <laughs> sure. He's the guy that, if I can give a basketball analogy, when you watch Vince Carter or Michael Jordan do something really cool or Kobe Bryant, everybody wants to play basketball. They want to dribble a ball. They want to shoot the ball when they see them play. Um, that's how Mango is. When you see his Falco or Fox play, he does really cool stuff. All of a sudden, when he wins, you want to pick up the controller and do what he does. Top five player, one of the greatest players of all time. Very wild, loves to drink, loves to party, loves the Eagles. You know what he loves. He's very expressive, has a really wild personality. It also reflects in his gameplay. He loves taking big risks. He likes outplaying his opponent. He likes to make sure that you knew that he outplayed his opponent, and he likes his style on everyone. Can you talk a bit about his rivalry with another elite player named Armada? I think it's really interesting how kind of national allegiances play into this and the idea of rivalries in general in this scene. The rivalry between Mango and Armada, you know, Armada was from Europe, and when Armada came into the scene to Genesis 1 back in, I believe, 2009, um, he was an unknown player. Nobody expected him to really do that well. And then the first ever tournament Armada competes in the U.S., he gets to grand finals and actually beats Mango in the first set, and then eventually loses to Mango in grand finals. And so you have this European versus North American rivalry between, um, at the time, best uh, North American player in Mango and the best European player in Armada. And the big thing about them is they're very contrasting in styles where Armada likes to play a controlled game where he likes to control space and choke you out. Mango likes to take a lot more risks and it's a lot less calculated and a lot less structured. So you see what I call the question of can this unstoppable force 
past this unmovable wall in these two players. Yeah, I've been really interested in the way commentators describe playing styles in this game. Like, so with tennis, you might say that Roger Federer is an attacker because he goes up to the net a lot. Nadal is a lot more defensive. He stays by the baseline. So I guess what other kind of main playing types will you see in this game? The beautiful thing about melee is that there's so much expression in the movement, whereas in Street Fighter, once you jump, you can't like move left or right. So there's minor movement that you can do with the character. So when you watch gameplay for about 30 seconds, like each player has like a digital signature, so you can tell if this this Fox player is playing, if it's uh, Leffen or if it's Mango or if it's IBDW. I, I think a large part of playstyles comes to how aggressive they play versus how passive they play, and they let the other player you know, take initiative. So there are defensive players like Hungrybox, Armada, and there are aggressive players like Mango, and there are players that are somewhat in between, like Plup and Leffen, who really know how to both play defensively and offensively when the situation calls for it. What did it mean to be Mango's coach? Were you making him do drills or helping him with strategy or just playing with him? What, what does that entail? Mango is by far one of the most stubborn people I've ever met. And so for <laughs> him... Um, Telling him what to do will instantly shut off his mind. And so obviously, you know, there are things that I take note of in sets where if he plays against Armada and I notice patterns of habit that isn't working for him, um, I can't just tell him, hey, you got to stop doing this or you got to do this more. I usually ask him a question and say, hey, it seems like Armada is doing this a lot. Like, what do you do against that? And it gets Mango talking. It's like, oh, like I need to be doing X. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So if you did X next time, you'd win. He's like, yeah. And so that's how I coach him. Also, just try to get him into a routine for tournament day. So I think a lot of it is just preparing him, understanding what he likes to eat that gives him the most energy, understanding what time he needs to go to bed, understanding how much warm-up time he needs. Um, These are things he doesn't really think about. And I noticed that created performance dips or performance peaks. And so I try to replicate as many scenarios as I can so that he's performing at peak whenever the top eight happens. Yeah, what what do routines usually look like when you're going to a big tournament? I mean, what do people usually eat? Like, how much sleep do they really need? What do people usually consider? And do you have any examples of these sorts of routines? A lot of people party till 3 a.m. and they drink all night. So even like these top 16 players, so the routines aren't really good. So what I really did for Mango is I tracked like what worked for him and what didn't work. And in general, what we noticed is about seven hours of sleep was good. So if if he had his first bracket match at 10 a.m., then I like for him to sleep at 1 a.m. and then wake up at 8. And this gives us enough time to get ready and get to the venue and do a little bit of warm up. Because these tournaments are really long, they're like three day events. It's important for us to keep pace. And what I noticed is that if he has to play longer than like about three hours straight, he tends to fizzle out at the end. So I have to see how long he's playing for and then adjust the amount of time he can warm up. Ideally, I want to maximize the number of uh, warm-up hours, but let's say he's playing for two hours straight or in that window, then I can only allow him to warm up for one hour. And any more would actually cause him to fatigue at the end. As far as food and snacks go, um, it depends on the type of day. If he has a later day, then we get a hearty breakfast. If he doesn't, then he actually likes nuts and fruits and and granola bars that keep him energized. Anything too heavy actually affects him. So we can't really go for like a burger or like a sandwich that's like really heavy. Uh, We usually go for light, like nuts and fruits usually. So where does fatigue come from? Is that just the mental exertion or is that like, you know, your, your hands are literally like getting sore over the day? 
I think it's mental exertion mostly. When players play for a long time, in the beginning, they're looking for different things. And then uh, what happens over time is they might get a little bit too comfortable and they get lazy and then they don't pick up on habits or they subconsciously do the same thing over and over again. So just keeping just keeping the warm-up and the time short makes them still focus. And But if you keep it too long, then they start just getting really lazy. So I know with a lot of other sports, emotions are a big part of it. It's sort of a mental game where you know you can't have your emotions affecting how you play. And I've seen a lot of videos of Smash players, you know, having these outbursts and even breaking their controllers. So what kind of headspace do you need to be in to be successful in a tournament? The headspace that's needed to, to be successful is like it's pretty much like removing any thought that's not relevant. I mean, I think a lot of people get anxious, so they go like, what will the crowd think of me? Like, how do I look? Oh, ideally, you want to be thinking like, what is my opponent doing? What do I need to do to win? And as soon as those questions get faded out for, oh gosh, I look really bad. Oh gosh, there's like 10,000 people. Oh gosh, I'm nervous. They're no longer focusing on the game. So for Mango, you know, I do my best to just make sure that he's not distracted by these thoughts and that the only thing he's thinking about is the game itself. I see. So the self-doubt can kind of really uh, wreck you. Self-doubt and also on the other end, just tilting and getting frustrated. Uh, Hungrybox is really good at tilting Mango because Hungrybox plays so defensive that uh, Mango likes to give action and he likes to run in and Hungrybox doesn't like to do that against Mango in particular. And Hungrybox knows that it tilts Mango, so he does it. So a lot of times I have to go to Mango and say like, hey, like if he doesn't interact with you, just think of just positive thoughts or just like run around the stage and just practice your tech skill. Like if he's not giving you anything to work with, like do something else that that can distract you from getting mad. So tilting is like frustrating the other person, I'm guessing. Like what are some strategies for kind of getting in someone else's head? I think for when I coached Mango, one of the big things is that when Mango gets to heavy outplay, like he reads like the next two movements of his opponent, what it does is it inflicts a lot of self-doubt on the opponent where they're like, oh shoot, like is he on to me? Like, and then they're really becoming self-conscious about not doing stuff and then it gets them off their game plan so when mango is really on point he's really showing that he's in your head and then it's really hard to beat that because you're second guessing every one of your decisions at that point i see so it's almost like a chess game you're trying to prove that you're thinking ahead more than the other person exactly okay we're gonna take a quick break but we'll be right back with more from daniel lee Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I know that the second game in the series is considered the best and most complex. Why is that? It was largely by design. A lot of people will jokingly say it's an accident. I think when Sakurai designed the game, if you look at the era of the GameCube, um, a lot of those games were pretty hardcore and difficult. And so that was like probably the peak of Sakurai's game design decisions to say like, hey, we're going to make a really hardcore game. But when you notice for the later series games like the Wii and the Wii U, it was to a very casual audience. You see the type of games that were released. So it was like Wii Sports, games that would bring a broader audience into playing Nintendo systems. And so the design decisions for games like Brawl 
took a more casual stance. And it just so happens that that was like the demographic that Nintendo was targeting for those respective systems. So does it seem like Nintendo is kind of weighting their games towards more casual players and leaving the more complex players behind? I think in general for now, uh, for like Ultimate and the Switch, the pendulum was slightly swinging the other way. It's never going to go back to like the classic Nintendo where like everything is like super hard. But I think what they realize is that with the Wii, that casual fans aren't going to be hardcore in terms of supporting the system they kind of flee it's like kind of like a fad and so um i think they're catering their games more to core audiences and you're seeing like the difficulty and the competitive and the hardcore angle coming back to games like zelda and mario and all these franchises 2008 there was a huge tournament called genesis where people from different countries were playing against each other for the first time can you speak a bit about how globalization has kind of impacted the Smash Brothers community? Sure. So back in 08 and 09, um, this was, I believe, when like YouTube like started getting popular and people from local communities were um, you know, starting to post videos. Prior to that, we had to use, uh, I believe, DC++ and MediaShare. So when people talked about how good players were in the region, we really didn't have context to like how good they were. So is the best player in Europe as good as the best player in New York, who at the time was one of the best regions? How does California come into New York? You can only trash talk. So if you actually look at smash right. boards there's a bunch of hilarious like trash talk threads where people are just non-stop trash talking other players and saying your region's not that good our region's better and so there was actually like a huge rivalry because there were just so many unknowns and genesis essentially bridged the gap on that because it answered a lot of questions which region is truly the best and as events started you know globalizing we saw a lot more majors come where people across not only the u.s but the world started coming in people started to actually get more friendly because they're like oh like i can put a face to this trash talking person and you're actually not this asshole that that has been presented so as time has went gone on since that and like especially in 2013 2014 2015 where we have people traveling all the time i think it's really created a global community in the sense that everybody like knows each other and everybody likes hanging out with each other as opposed to having these like fragmented regions now with that being said said there are regions that aren't well represented. I know the smaller countries in Europe, Latin America, and Japan have scenes, but because the money isn't there, we don't get to see them very often. So there is still some fragmentation even in 2019. Yeah, I mean, does national and regional pride play a lot into the narrative around the game now? Have you observed, you know, someone repping a certain country, anything to that effect? Nationalistic pride is like, it's still kind of there, but it's kind of died. I think the first few years when we started seeing cross-region and international representation, we used to have crew battles, which were really hype. You know, it's like, is East Coast better than West Coast? Is um, Florida better than California? But I think the enthusiasm for those kind of events has kind of waned. And so, like, there's not as much, like, national pride as much as there's, like, individualistic pride. And you just mentioned trash talk a bit earlier. I mean, is it usually done in good fun or... Can it get toxic at all? I think for the most part, when it's among top players, it's usually fine. Like, so when people tweet, um, it's usually in good fun. Occasionally there's bad blood, and that's where like the salty suits kind of came up. Infamously, the Laughing versus Chillin' Dude set where uh, Chillin' made a rap video. There was some bad blood, but because everybody knows each other, it's like always, it's usually almost always in good, clean fun. Like they're just bantering. I think the, I guess the toxic aspects of trash talk usually come from the fan bases and like the general Reddit and Twitter cloud um, crowd where if like Leffen tweets out something that everybody just latches onto it and then you have arguments among the fan bases more than like the players themselves. Oh, I see. So the fans are responsible for some of it too. What is your sense of the the Smash Bros. scenes in other countries? Do they differ a lot from the community that has cropped up in the U.S.? Living in the U.S., like 
we have such a huge community. Um, we have large events all the time, locals everywhere. Um, and c- there's a lot of countries that want to do stuff where they see what the U.S. is doing. They're like, we wish we could do that. And you'll see Leffen and Armada in Europe, for example, go like, we don't really have anybody to play. You have people in Korea that have a small scene, but just like not as big as the U.S. So you have compassionate community members in other countries and other scenes that just don't have the resources or like the people or the personnel to mimic what the U.S. is doing. So it seems like the the big tournament scene, at least, is partly responsible for making people famous for playing Super Smash Brothers. And do you think that fame and celebrity and money to a certain extent has benefited the scene or does it complicate things? I think it overall benefits the scene, mainly because when we look at the top players, there's like the prize pots are so small that literally there's no chance at them doing this full time unless they were able to use that celebrityism to make large Twitch streams. Like there's an alternate universe where all these players are forced to get full time jobs instead of streaming, especially at the top end. So it does benefit the scene because it allows the top players to commit full time to gaming and Smash. Yeah. So how is the advent of Switch, the the live uh, game streaming service kind of changed the culture and how you can make money in this game. Does it seem like, you know, you can gain more of a following and maybe make more money at this? Yeah, so if you look at like all the players, whether it's Zero, Nairo, um, Mango, Armada, King, they've taken their popularity that they've gone with the game and they actually make decent money through their streams and whatnot. So there's something to be said about if you win tournaments and win events and you build a following through the Smash scene that it t- can potentially turn into something monetizable whether or not that's directly from prize pots or something else. I see. So sponsorships might factor into that too. Yes. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll continue our conversation with Daniel Lee. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. So I know this is the case with a lot of video game communities, but it, it seems like the vast majority of Super Smash Brothers players are male. Are there any barriers to entry for female players, or what do you think accounts for this gender disparity? So I think, like, fundamentally, like, you look, let's kind of work outwards in. It's like, how are people getting into the game? And I think, and just in general, just with societal norms, like, women will probably not play comp- Smash in a competitive way as much as men will, and we can... I don't know what the exact reason is for that. Probably societal like norms. Like boys at a young age are encouraged to play video games, what maybe girls aren't. Maybe that ch- that's changing. I would say that there is a lot of pressure for um, minority groups, uh, whether they're LGBTQ or you know they're women, um, to enter the space because I think you know you have a lot of people in the community that are very young and also immature. So when you see things prop up, like you see the woman uh, get targeted with a lot of attention and sure there's a lot of encouraging people but then you have the trolls and the other people that just attack them just for being women in the scene and i've had a lot of women i've talked to who get very discouraged and they're just like i don't want this attention like and it's really hard because it creates a lot of anxiety creates a lot of extra pressure and that's something that a lot of guys won't really experience that women do and so you already have a small funnel of player of women players that are entering the scene but that's further exacerbated by the fact that like 
a lot of people in the community don't know how to deal with women in the scene, so they end up leaving. I mean, do you think representation among women and minorities has gotten better in the scene? If it has, like, what what do you think is driving that? I don't know if, like, there's, like, numbers that, like, would prove or disprove it. I think intuitively speaking, like, I think it probably gets slightly better than it was probably, like, 10 years ago when, you know, I was entering tournaments in 09. I would like to say, yeah, but I don't have like factual evidence to prove or disprove it. I think overall, younger players, like in their teenage years, especially, there's a lot more women who, you know, are down to play competitive games. So maybe that's the reason why. But regardless of what I think, I just think that this community could do better, be better to welcoming women into the scene. I guess switching subjects, you're also a commentator. Can you talk a bit about what you look out for when you're commentating a match and uh, just how commentators usually fit into this ecosystem. Yeah, so when I first entered the scene, I did commentary. One of the big kind of tilting things was getting people getting information wrong. And so why I developed things like TAFO stats and started writing articles was to correct false narratives that were popping up. Um, because we don't really have like Riot API or centralized database to really say like these players have actually played this many times. So what used to happen, especially in the early days of commentary, is a lot of people would just be like, yeah, this person always wins. And then you look at the data and it's like, wait, no, no, he doesn't. And so I want to correct that as much as I could. So usually I bring like the analytical edge and I usually try to bring in all like the stats and data into a set, which kind of propositions me as that kind of analytical nerd commentator and that's how I try to market myself. Yeah, what do stats usually look like? Is it like baseball where you're counting strikes and hits or what what kind of stats are you looking out for usually? Initially, it was like really bad. We didn't even have win-loss data between the players. And mm-hmm. at the very least, I want to create that baseline where commentators would know that when Omega and Armada play, like their set count is this. It's not whatever they're saying it is. It's actually like five and four or whatever it is. There are actually, it's pretty crazy what Smashers are doing. And this kind of just reflects the passion of the game. So flash forward to now, there's a company called Metascatter that actually uses OCR or like image recognizing software to look at game states. So they'll see like, it'll track the percentages and different things within the game. And there's also Slippy, which is a different project, which actually injects game code into Melee to output the number of neutral aerial attacks they use, the number of smash attacks they use, um, how many openings that they get, how quickly they get a kill. And so when you see streams now with like Big House, they're integrating this technology to show you how efficient Leffen is at getting a kill or how well Hungrybox is surviving against openings. Um, and this is all just new data that's been appearing the last one to two years. And has the advent of data like changed how people train or play at all? So a lot of data is still like manual. I think what players look at usually is not the number of backers that a person gets hit by exactly, but it's just watching film and just noticing certain things that are just reoccurring errors and then working off of that. So Crunch and Hungrybox are an example where Crunch watches game film and then he works with Hungrybox on very specific things that Hungrybox can fix. Overall, what is it about Super Smash Brothers that has made it so prominent and lasting? I feel like you can make an argument that it's the biggest fighting game now compared to, you know, Street Fighter or something. Why does it attract so many loyal fans so first off the nintendo ip is just really powerful whenever you look at a crossover series like even smash you have mario you have donkey kong you have pikachu you have all these characters from different worlds and this is what ultimate does really well is they're introducing characters and ip that bring a large amount of people into the game so the casual fan base for any smash game is going to be huge that's the starting point now for melee in particular the movement and the gameplay um, and i played a ton of 
competitive games. I love, there's nothing that quite matches the movement and the decision making that I find in Melee. And I think when people realize and get to that level where they can make decisions, they can move the character at a high level, there's nothing in any other game that feels like what Melee does. Yeah, it, the, the crossover appeal almost seems like a kind of Marvel strategy, creating an extended universe. Yeah, and I think it's just brilliant to do that. So whenever Nintendo adds a new DLC character, I kind of see like the marketing angle behind it, and it's genius. And lastly, what's your favorite character in the game? So my favorite character in overall is probably Ness across the series. He's a character that I first like got good with in Smash 64. In terms of melee, Sheik has always been my character. She uh, She's like a defensive character and just matches my playstyle and how I want to play the game. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take one quick final break. And then Shannon Paulus and Lizzie O'Leary will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best thing we saw on the web this week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Joining me now is my colleague Shannon Paulus, and we're very excited to introduce Lizzie O'Leary, host of What's Next TBD, a new technology podcast. Hey, guys. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Uh, So, Shannon, what's your tab for this week? My tab is an episode of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. It's called The Student Loan Nerd, Helping Borrowers One Email at a Time. And on this episode, Anna Sale interviews a woman who has started a nonprofit called the Institute for Student Loan Advisors. And it's basically her and a couple helpers responding to people's individual concerns via email about student loan repayment plans. And the person who started this nonprofit got the idea after she stumbled on a student loan uh, repayment subreddit, and she was in the student loan industry, and she was just like, oh my god, who is answering these people's questions? They're just, everyone appears to be lost and turning to this internet forum to help. There should be some sort of neutral third party to dispense this information. And it really just struck me as like, like, this human being trying to hold this complicated, crumbling system together by sitting in front of her Gmail from 7 a.m. until she had to shower late at night, weekends included. It, it was interesting and heartbreaking, and I admired this person, and it just made me all the more sad for the world. It's really worth a listen. Huh, so... When, when she's, like, answering these these inquiries, she became the neutral third party in this story. Is that right? She became the neutral third party. What was her approach? Is she just trying to disseminate information, like, compassionately at least? or Just kind of compassionately responding to people who are struggling to understand their student loan repayment plans and, you know, check their work or help them if they email her because 
they're lost or angry or, in some cases, suicidal. It sounds like a really tough job, and she's not taking a salary right now either. It's amazing because there there are, and in fact, there is a government office, or supposed to be, at the CFPB. That there was a student loan ombudsman who quit. I mean, it, it, yeah. it just speaks to how intensely people are struggling with this stuff that it shows up in places like Death, Sex, and Money and, and other quasi-weird communities because there isn't a central place to deal with this. And it's so complicated. Yeah, it's yeah. not made with like, I feel like we move through our lives with all of this customer service friendliness of like Facebook and Instagram. And like, oh, you just like pop your picture in here and it all works. And then suddenly you get to these really like financial, almost life and death matters. And there's just no one there to like help guide you through. Well, particularly because the the way the business model for them works, right? Your servicer, your in-between step is paid by kind of those transactions that they service. They're they're not there to actually, you know, kind of make this easier for you. They're making money. And it like as I was listening to this episode, you know, I used to work at Wirecutter, the product review site, and it just I was thinking about how there's just never gonna be like a wire cutter for student loan help mm. because the model of Wirecutter and now every other site, including Slate, giving product advice is that they take a little cut of your purchase. And there's no place for a third party to step in and like ethically take a little cut of your student loan purchase. Lizzie, what's your tap for this week? I mean, it's a big shift in tone. My tap for this week is Fat Bear Week. Do you guys know what Fat Bear Week is? No. Can you explain? Okay, so Fat Bear Week is an offshoot of this incredible webcam that is in Alaska. It's run by a nonprofit called explore.org and they have like 30 webcams all around the world, but the one that people love and their highest traffic one is the bear cam. And it is a live cam on a bunch of bears in Katmai National Park in Alaska, and by this point in the year, they have been feasting on salmon and you can watch them fish for salmon in their like various different styles and now they're really fat. <laughs> And they've been doing this, I think, since 2011, 2012. They've gotten such a following and been written up in all these different places that the park has figured out, like, actually, this is great for us. We can have a Facebook page. And they have, like, a a March Madness-style bracket of fat bears. So we're now down to the two two final bears, the two final fattest bears that that are competing to be— you know, Fat Bear 2019. That you sounds... can see their before and after pics on the oh site. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much weight they've put on in, you know, salmon innards in the past few months. It's kind of amazing. That sounds so relaxing. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's like people, there are all these communities that have sprung up about it. People make memes. They've made sites. They're, some people have just like a second monitor so they can watch the bears oh all God. day long. Do you get a sense of, like, why this stream, like, uh, got so popular compared to all the others? Is there just something about bears that... I think there's something about bears. I did an interview with a guy who runs the whole organization a couple of years ago, and I was like, why why is this the one that took off? Because they've got sharks, they've got puffins, they have puppies. Like, you would think the puppy cam is going to be the big one, but everybody seems to love the bears. I think it's because they would otherwise be so inaccessible. Like, you're probably not going to go to Katmai National Park and stand in front of 20 bears who are fishing for salmon. And it's this rare confluence of, like, a time when all of these bears are together and not wanting to kill one another because they just want salmon. 
<laughs> you're turning something that's usually a reason to be afraid of going into the woods, at least for me, into this source of entertainment. <laughs> totally. And and like when I talked to this guy, Charlie Annenberg, who who runs it, you know, his idea was we can bring this little piece of nature to people digitally. Like they can have this experience or maybe they can think about conservation or sustainability because they've had this digital connection with the fat bears. How are they like judging fatness? Are they actually like weighing the bears or? No, no, but I mean, you can, it's, it's visual. There's one bear named Holly where there was a description on the site that her, like the way the fat coalesced around her back and her butt makes her look like she's wearing a thong. (laughs) Like the folds of how it, she's, you know, she's, she's a finalist. It's Holly and one other bear. (laughs) You gotta get. You gotta be really fat to make it through the winter. (laughs) Aaron, what's your tab? So my tab this week is a Rolling Stone article about the song "La La La" by Y2K and Baby No Money. So I'm a bit late to this, but I've been noticing that this song is kind of taking over TikTok. It's sort of like how you started hearing "Old Town Road" in like every single video, though it hasn't quite got that big yet. The the Rolling Stone basically talks about how the two musicians tried to flood the internet with the song. So, Hmm. you know, they were friendly with a lot of TikTok celebrities who helped spread it on the platform, but they were also, like, buying Tinder Plus accounts and sending the song to anyone they matched with. They, like, put the song on Craigslist and eBay as, like, listings. They started sending, like, fake stories to online media outlets. So I I suppose this is just the internet version of, like, handing your mixtape out on the sidewalk. Totally. But I think the lengths that, you know, up-and-coming artists have to go to to advertise their music and, like, how technology and changing platforms uh, kind of influence that is just really fascinating. That's incredible. I mean, I feel like the, that's similar to the Wall Street Journal's got a story about sort of TikTok, TikTok being the new music platform. But it's so smart to do it that way, I guess, because it spreads quasi-organically. Yeah, I'm not familiar enough with the mechanics of TikTok to figure out how you would disseminate a song on the platform like that. Can you explain a little bit more, Aaron? Yeah, well, so this is the thing I've always been curious with about uh, Lil Nas X, who, you know, obviously did Old Town Road. He actually was really big on Twitter beforehand. Um, right. He ran, like, a Nicki Minaj uh, fan account that got a lot of likes. He used to, like, copy viral threads onto his own account to, like, get a lot of, like, more attraction on the platform. But I don't know how he used that to transplanted that onto TikTok. I know he spread it on Twitter, but I don't know how he made that transition necessarily. But it does seem like something where you see it one place and you're like, yeah, I want that. I want to try that. I I say this as an old. (laughs) I'm just fascinated by the Tinder Plus thing. Yeah. (laughs) And now I'm like, could you like make a Tinder account like for a book or for an article and then just start spamming people with it? (laughs) Or a podcast. Or a a podcast. podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So like the, the artists admit that they don't really know if it worked or not. Like they don't have any metrics to decide like whether the TikTok outreach strategy really worked. But I think they're just like trying a bunch of different random things to see what stuck. So that's our last episode of If Then. We've really enjoyed doing this and really appreciate our loyal listeners. What Next TBD will be our new tech podcast. Lizzie, can you talk about what you have in store? Yeah, so... The way to think about it is we're kind of taking a spinoff of Mary Harris's What Next show, and we are thinking about technology, power, and the future, and kind of how those things all come together, how they're going to influence our lives over the next untold number of years. So we're going to try and dig into a couple of interesting stories a week and hopefully spin them out in a way that's fun and interesting. It's going to come out on Friday. It's going to just magically appear in your feed. 
We're excited to listen. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mack. Thanks again to our guests, Daniel Lee. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Justin D. Wright. Thanks also to Rosemary Belson, who engineered for us in D.C. See you later. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.